Real News. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is January 9th, 2020. Wow, doesn't it feel like this month has had a lot of events going on in just a short period of time. Uh, January, the start to the new year, the start to transparency, the start to shedding light. All we see is news after news after news after news. War, fake war, kind of war, charade. (laughs) It was a charade, kabuki theater, revenge theater. And all the while, everyone's scathing. Now, we're going to talk about Scotland on Monday, because Scotland's very, very important. Scotland, where everyone in the European Union has been sending uranium-type weapons, very highly condensed in one area, Scotland, Scotland. So we're going to talk about that. Seems really, really, um, really well-timed that we have a, um, you know, property there for Uh, that President Trump opened up too. So that's interesting. It's almost as if we knew. But um, today, I want to talk about the intelligence community. It is a very um, different uh, type of animal. A lot of people don't seem to understand it. We touched base on this. So I thought um, walking things step by step so you can understand where the gray areas are, where the illegalities are, where the, this doesn't look right, are, um, come together. You know, every single agency, all 17 of them, have someone that's appointed as an inspector general of that area. We have an inspector general for the DOJ. We have one for the NSA. We have one for the intelligence community, which you kind of think, well, hold on a second, intelligence community Is that like a general bucket? Well, actually, that IG reports to the director of um, the National Intelligence um, Office. So I guess the DNI would be getting the report from the IG or they would be working together. So what does that entail? Well, that would entail the intelligence communities you don't know about. But wait. Didn't they say that the whistleblower was intelligence? Are you saying that he's from the other intelligence agencies? Because everyone's saying that they were CIA. And then I thought, well, has the CIA, the IG of the CIA chimed in? Oh, wait, hold on. We don't have one. What? Yeah, we don't have one. Three years of President Trump, no IG of the CIA. Huh. No IG of the CIA or, excuse me, why don't we have an IG of the CIA? Well, I think um, it's important that we find out why we don't have an IG of the CIA. Let me introduce you to the guy that was acting IG of the CIA in 2015 by Barack Hussein Obama. The same guy President Trump nominated to be confirmed, but it didn't happen. So take a listen. Intelligence Agency, Chris, congratulations on your nomination. I'd like to start by recognizing the family that you brought with you here today. I understand your wife, Kimberly. Yes, sir. Is here, as well as your son, Stephan and Aiden. Yes. Stephan, Aiden, give me a wave. Okay, good. <laughs> and uh, your daughter, 
Jill, Jillian and her husband James. Yes. Good. And of course, your mother Joyce. Welcome. Our goal in conducting this hearing is to enable the committee to consider Mr. Sharpley's qualifications and to, follow, and to allow for thoughtful deliberation by our members. Chris already has provided substantive written responses to 85 questions presented by the committee and its members. Today, of course, members will be able to ask additional questions and to hear from Mr. Sharpley in this open session. Mr. Sharpley earned his BA from American University and received his master's degree from the Naval Postgraduate School. In 1981, he received a commission from the U.S. Air Force where he trained as a special agent and a counterintelligence officer in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Chris continued to serve in the Air Force in a variety of posts, including as Director of Security until he retired honorably from the Air Force in 2002. Immediately following his retirement, Chris joined the Office of the Inspector General of the Department of Energy as a civilian federal special agent. Since then, Chris has worked as the Deputy IG for Investigations and Inspections for the Department of Energy and helped to build the new OIG offices at, TARP, uh, at the TARP program and the Federal Housing Authority. In 2010, Chris received the Presidential Rank Award for Meritorious Service for that work. In 2012, Chris retired as a federal civilian law enforcement officer and started his career at the Central Intelligence Agency. Chris, if you don't mind me saying, I don't think you're very good at retiring. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> From 2012 to 2015, Chris served as Deputy Inspector General at the CIA. Since 2015, Chris has served as both deputy and acting IG of the CIA. Chris uh, is independent and empowered, uh, and empowered uh, inspector generals are critical to the integrity and, and efficient management of the intelligence community. And I trust that you will lead the CIA's offices of integrity and will, with integrity and will ensure your officers operate lawfully, ethically, and morally. As I mentioned uh, to other nominees during this nomination hearing, <clears throat> I can assure you that this committee will continue to faithfully follow its charter and conduct vigorous and real-time oversight over the intelligence community, its operations, and its activities. We will ask difficult and probing questions of you, your staff, and will expect honest, complete, and timely responses. Chris, I look forward to supporting your nomination and ensuring its consideration without delay. I want to thank you again for being here today, for your years of service to your country, both in uh, law enforcement and in our military, and I look forward to your testimony. So what rang true for you? What did you hear from his lovely career? What did you hear? I heard Uranium One, you know, Department of Energy. He was an agent with the Air Force. Then he went into the CIA, directly into the OIG. He also set up the OIGs for housing authorities and TARP, etc. So it kind of makes you think, who is this guy? Now, he didn't get confirmed at the time when this was all going. Um... If I'm not mistaken, it was uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, who was the CIA director at the time, right, when this happened. So it's uh, really interesting, is it? Well, no, he wasn't. And Gina Haspel was already in when the confirmation hearing happened. But his nomination happened 
after after the fact. Yeah, that's right. Oh, dear. He was nominated earlier when Pompeo was still, and then he wasn't confirmed when Haspel became CIA uh, director of the CIA. So he didn't get confirmed. So this is a guy that has provided a lot of service to the governments before him. I just wanted to state, we do not have an IG at the CIA. So who oversees the CIA if there's no ID of the CIA? I'm just saying, because their name's not on it, and it clearly doesn't state it. So one would think, what, would Michael Atkinson take on the role? Maybe, but... According, according to the statute that outlines the intelligence communities, um, uh, the it's uh, 50 U.S. Code 3033, Inspector General of the Intelligence Community. Uh, they only work for the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, so that is the only oversight they have. So right now we have no oversight in the CIA or do we? Who knows? But one thing I can tell you about Michael Atkinson is that he's in a lot of trouble a lot of trouble. And the reason is, is that he supposedly received this whistleblower complaint and knows the identity of the whistleblower. Now, one would have to ask, this man moved from the from the Justice Department's National Security Division, was nominated, was placed here. But remember, he was the boss of the person that broke the laws in the first place, John Carlin. He was the boss of McCord. So all of the people that allowed for the overcollection of data through the NSA, right, because they couldn't provide these section certifications, were under his watch. In addition, Carlin also served as chief of staff and senior counsel to Robert Mueller. <laughs> so weird, right? And he was the national coordinator, get this, on computer hacking and intellectual property. Mm. What? Hmm? Yeah. Computer hacking and intellectual property. Working as senior counsel um, to Robert Mueller. So this is the guy that uh, came up with the uh, whole, uh, here's the whistleblower complaint. Now, Impeachment investigators questioned Michael Atkinson. So I want you to take a listen to this. Members of the House Intelligence Committee hear testimony today from the Intelligent Community's Inspector General as part of the impeachment inquiry into the president. The hearing was prompted, has prompted a group of former inspectors general to call for whistleblowers to be protected from retaliation. In an open letter calling on Congress to protect the whistleblower at the center of president's impeachment inquiry, the eight former inspectors general write, quote, Whistleblowers are a vital component of oversight in addressing serious malfeasance, both within the government and throughout the private sector. Joining me now to take a look at the issue from a Catholic perspective is Brian Mahaney, a lawyer who represents whistleblowers around the nation. He was instrumental in the government's recovery of over $16 billion from Bank of America on behalf of taxpayers and homeowners in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Brian, welcome into the program. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Why do whistleblowers come to lawyers like yourself for advice and representation? What exactly are they afraid of, and what are your conversations like with them? That's a great question. So whistleblowers come for several reasons. 
Some feel that they've been ignored within the workplace. They could be government employees who see something wrong, report it up the chain, nothing happens. They could be working for a private company and they see wrongdoing. Typically, they try to fix the problem internally first and only when they get nowhere internally do they turn outside. Outside could be directly to a, a government agency or to a lawyer. And sometimes, roughly 20 to 30 percent face retaliation. And that's when they come, after they've lost their job or been demoted or something. You called some of these whistleblowers that you've represented heroes. Why do you use that term? Because they're willing to stand up. They're taking a chance. When you're a whistleblower, you're sticking your neck out. So you're bucking the system, basically. The government or private companies typically have this mentality of don't rock the boat, don't make any waves, just play along with it. And these whistleblowers feel strongly enough they have good moral convictions that say, no, what you're doing is illegal or what you're doing is wrong. And they're willing to step forward. As I said, sometimes, 20 to 30 percent of the times, they face some sort of retaliation for doing so. Uh, when I ask you about if there's any situations where you're concerned about a potential conflict of interest, because my understanding is that some whistleblowers in the private sector may receive financial compensation if their information leads to a prosecution. Correct. I call that incentivizing integrity. Congress, okay. all the way back in the 1860s during the Civil War, realized that there's not enough government resources after all the wrongdoing. So we've incentivized people. We've said, hey, we'll pay you money. Government whistleblowers don't get that. They get retaliation. Private sector whistleblowers get both protection. Wow. It's a, it, it caused a bit. But what I wanted to say, this incentivizing, because a lot of people are like, well, if you're going to get money out of it, think about it. If you whistleblow against the government, more than likely, from you'll be out of a job. I know you're protected from retaliation, but you're really not. You're put in this box. Nobody wants to talk to you. No one's going to play with you. You're going to get all the grunt work. You're going to have a desk in the basement facing a wall counting paper clips. That's how it works because you told on someone. Now, in honesty, in the intelligence community, there is no whistleblower protection because they look at everything you do. The only thing you can whistleblow about is stuff that's off-ish the record, okay? Just so that we're clear. Retaliation, and in some instances, a reward. Okay. Uh, how important is confidentiality in protecting the whistleblower? It's paramount. So we see today the, the Ukraine situation, mm -hmm. uh, and the public sees the, pub the, the political whistleblowing, the, the government sector whistleblowing, and they have ver it's very polarizing. People have very strong opinions on one side or the other, but no one will step forward if they're going to be uh, outed. People want that safety. They want to be able to know that somebody will listen without having their name blasted all over the, the media. You use the term integrity. We've used the importance of confidentiality. How important is your faith to you as you approach this particular situation when you talk to whistleblowers and thinking about it from a moral perspective? It's very important. So um, whistleblowers, they're trying to do the right thing. Believe it or not, most people aren't in it for the money, although there is money on the, the private sector side. Yeah. Almost every whistleblower that I've ever represented is doing it because they feel it's the right thing to do. And often the corporate culture or the government culture. Wow, is it cutting out or is it just me? Yeah, loyalty it is. to the business or loyalty to the agency. Well, you have a, we have a higher duty. So if you're working, for, let's say, I'll use an example, working for a pharmaceutical company and you know that the pharmaceutical company is producing a product, 
that hasn't been inspected or has some sort of, uh, it's been adulterated or something, you have a higher duty to report that, even if it's bucking the system, even if it's making waves. Let me go back to the Ukraine because you had cited the situation there with the presidential uh, inquiry. Um, lawyers, of course, for the whistleblower at the center of that impeachment inquiry have said they're concerned for his or her safety. Do you think that potentially has a chilling effect? Yes. So if you're a government whistleblower in the intelligent community, I think it has a huge chilling effect if you can't step forward without uh, worried about being uh, on the evening news. So I have, we have no idea who this whistleblower is or mm -hmm. what they've done or what their position in we only know that they're in the intelligence community mm -hmm. i would be very worried and if i were another whistleblower potential whistleblower i'd be afraid to uh, come forward with all of the the uh, threats that have been out there and the threats are on both sides by the way it doesn't matter what political party you are everybody has their own political agenda and that's not the idea um, behind the whole whistleblowing program. The whole idea is that you can come forward to an inspector general, make your report, and it'll be treated confidenti confidentially and investigated, not become a, a political football for one side or the other. So. so on that note, I have to say, yes, agreed. Whistleblowers should be protected. And uh, as far as their identity, it should be protected up until, up until charges begin. When your testimony is being used for prosecution, for impeachment, your identity is no longer hidden because everyone deserves the right to meet their accuser. Now, here's where it comes key. Intelligence community, which means that this person is in one of these agencies that you don't know of. One of these agencies that are not visible on the forefront. One of these agencies that a lot of people uh, don't know their specific initials. It could be Department of Energy, but uh, they oversee energy intelligence and they have some special three-letter name. And even the Department of Energy doesn't know they exist and they have like these fake jobs as security guys or investigators that are on the outline, uh, you know, on the outskirts of the Department of Energy, kind of like, you know, that nominee for IG of the CIA. So these are the outliers that connect the agencies if that makes sense, not really connect, but picture, picture a circle. And in the center of that circle, you have the stamp and seal of the department of energy. Then in that circle, you have a bunch of little dots and all of those workers. Now the peripheral, the actual outline of that circle has people like circles that sit there, but they're also connected to another circle a smaller circle. So they sit in a chair, right? That sits in both the department of energy circle and then their tiny little circle. Make sense? So I want you to picture it like that. So you can visualize how this works. Now that's like the intelligence agency portion of it, but they have a public facing portion of it. Get it? Obviously there's a lot of people in those private circles that don't have any face. Like I said, they could be managers for Toys R Us. They could be your barista at Starbucks. You will never know. So moving along, this whistleblower, if any, 
which it's not, is a manufactured person or a person that may take the fall for a wiretap. There is no whistleblower, period. And since they know that the whistleblower's identity must be protected and they cannot provide a whistleblower, it further reinforces the fact. So here we have Michael Adkinson under investigation. Because when you have people across from you, I don't think Devin Nunes would have any problem if he sat across from the whistleblower and didn't tell any of us who he is. None. Have a private hearing where he could sit right across the president of the United States completely in a skiff. Nobody sees anything except for them and everybody says nothing because we want to protect his identity. But they're not willing to do that either. So your whistleblower identity goes out the window when there's charges filed and you need to testify. It's like me whistleblowing on, like he gave the example about pharmaceuticals. Oh, they weren't tested or all these people died and it's my duty. So you whistleblow, an investigation happens. When it comes time for the trial, your face needs to be seen. And if not in camera with the judge and if not with the judge, and the opposing, you know, and the party that you're, you know, accusing, you did this and you point the finger. I mean, you can't not do that. So the fact that they're avoiding this and they're not sending the impeachment articles to the Senate is because of this. Because there is no whistleblower. And the fact that it went to the IG of the IC, it would then infer that it comes from an, from an, intelligence, community, asset, employee, contractor, whatever it may be, that should not be on the books. They knew they could cover their tushes by going there. So Atkinson is in a lot of trouble because it is determined and we have found that there is a wiretap and that there is no whistleblower. And it is known that Diane Feinstein sat down with her good friend and put it together. I mean, they're smart. They're not stupid. They're not, there's no IG for the CIA. So you would say, Oh, well, maybe he went to the, you know, IG of the IC since there's not one of the CIA. That's not how it works. Okay. That's not how it works. The director of the CIA would be responsible to organize a team that would actually do that's usually how it's done. Each agency to their own. You don't cross agency. The director, the IG of the IC oversees the people that oversee each of their agencies. So here's the cool part. What if all of those agencies of the IC that have their own IGs, right? So let's pretend we have an agency called XYZ. XYZ have their own IG that then go to Atkinson. What if all those agencies said, well, we never went to Atkinson because it wasn't our agency. What if, <laughs> what if those 15 agencies said, um, so I don't know what you're talking about, dude. Like, um, I don't know. We didn't get a complaint, so it didn't go through us. Chain of command is important in order to determine, uh, to have paper trail and accountability and to ensure that things are done properly. So if agency X, uh, you know, say I was part of agency X, 
and I had a complaint, I would put it into the IG or the person that oversees complaints and investigates things that happen into Agency X. Like I could say, yo, uh, in our agency, they're spending way too much money on post-it notes. Like this chick, because she, she thinks that she knows how to order, and this is partially a true story, she's buying post-its from this place that $5 per post-its when it could be $3, you know, our budgets are like way off. So how would I put in that complaint? I'd anonymously say, you know, Sherry right there is totally messing up. And I'd send it to the IG of my agency and the IG of my agency will be like, all right, we'd be saving $3,000 every month. If you get the post, it's there. Investigation is done. And then they issue an order to Sherry telling her that she's not doing her job and that she's not looking to ensure the best price to use federal tax dollars, blah, blah, blah. She could get fired or she could get written up or anything. And the complaint will be shown to her in writing without my name because it's unnecessary. Now, if I say that Sherry was committing a crime, you know, and they investigated and found out it was true, when Sherry goes to court, my face has to be there and say, yep, I saw you stealing the ho-hos. Do you see what I'm saying? I'll see you all in just a bit so we can continue this so you can understand exactly what's going on in the intelligence community. All right. So welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. So what I was explaining to you is how whistleblowing goes. So we left it off with the example that Sherry was stealing ho-hos. I told on her to my IG of my selective agency in the intelligence community, Agency X. And, you know, I write the report. I submit it to my, you know, inspector general, as you would say. They're pretty much the oversight people to make sure, you know, it's all budgets, crimes, etc. And then they would investigate. And if indeed Sherry was found guilty of stealing the ho-hos, she would then be fired and put on trial. She'll obviously contest it or not. If she doesn't contest it, then that's fine. She's just fired. If she does, there's court and she has to see my face. Now, in any case, my... Okay, identity being revealed as an employee on the record of that agency. And, you know, it's never going to say that agency is just going to say, I see. But if it was on the record, that's kind of unmasking. Nevertheless, I would have to be in that room, obfuscated at some point, being there with all the proper documentation, right? Stating why they are not allowed to know my identity, which is maybe because I'm currently in an operation of covert status. Maybe I'm, you know, whatever. Uh, just so you know, whenever you whistleblow, if it comes down to it, you're done. You're you're no longer going to be able to do the stuff you did unless they take the extra, you know, measures to ensure that your identity is not documented and that, um, you know, your identity is numbered so there's no name or it's misspelled. So that way, you know, if it is found, it's like, oh, yeah, just coincidence, just whatever, John Smith with an H or without an H doesn't mean the same person. So. It always happens. So you have to think to yourself, when they filed this whistleblower complaint that they orchestrated, okay, because they orchestrated it, they knew that if they went to the IC, that it would be different, 
they knew that uh, you wouldn't be able to get their identity because they could claim a barrage of reasons as to why the identity needs to be concealed. The thing is, no matter how important it is, if you're working with the most, um, most, let's pretend, totally pretend, let's pretend there was a unit with time travelers. Let's just totally pretend. And there were people that worked on that. Now you can't even let, you know, senators and Congress people know that we have the ability to go back in time or forward in time, right? Because then one of them, when they lose their kid or wife, will move heaven and earth to do it, right? Because this is what we do as human beings, right? So you can't let them know. So if there's a division like that and they know that there's divisions that they shouldn't know about, you know, and that whistleblower came from one of those pits, they will never find out their identity because their identity is so obfuscated that even the president has to jump through hoops to see it sometimes. Not saying that he does because he's in charge of everybody, but you never know. (laughs) There are some agencies that are so magical, right? That it's like super need to know. And the president knows only when he really needs to know. Okay. Cause they're that magical. So this is why they went through there. So Michael Atkinson is going to be in a lot of trouble if he can't justify. And the thing is, how can we determine the justification? Like, let's pretend, uh, you know, he, uh, he pretends that the person is that high up there, like, you know, you know, time traveler unit, which is like something you don't want anyone to know exists because that can be a problem, right? So how is this dealt with? Like, how can you guarantee it? Well, if the IG of the IC had a legitimate, a legitimate report, then the agency of the time traveling group would have their own IG, right? Because they have to keep everything within themselves. So there's a point of contact there. Kind of like I could have said, you know, Joe didn't fuel up the TARDIS and, you know, he didn't do it right and he totally crashed it. And I write a report. I'm not going to send that to Atkinson. I'm not going to send it to the Secretary of State because they're not supposed to know that we have TARDISes. So I'm going to send it to my boss and my boss is then going to investigate and then he's going to write some stupid budget thing that he's going to submit like we need to buy bookcases (laughs) or we need a new car to get money to repair whatever Joe did. And then Joe gets fired. So this is how it operates. So if Atkinson, if Atkinson had a legit whistleblower, he would have to provide the IG of that agency's face and name because they're documented. So it could be, you know, you could be the agency of, you know, time manipulation, right. Or harp or whatever, whatever right? And you could be in that agency and then say, I'm the boss, right? Say I'm the IG of that agency. I'll stand there and it'll look like I'm security of some, you know, BS title of keyboards. And then I would then say the report came from my very secret unit, uh, the division of keyboards. So he would have a document to say that, but he doesn't. 
And this is why it's being questioned because you have to justify why you're obfuscating the identity. And if the other agencies are not providing you documentation for justification, and this is, I've very, I've streamlined and very much so simplified the structure, you know, if I haven't given a document with my face and my name, which says super high class, the boss of this division, super black ops, not allowed to know what we do. And I've put my name on it and said, okay, I, Tori, say that the whistleblower complaint is valid because it came from my unit, the keyboard warriors. And then pff, here you go. And then suddenly... Michael Atkinson is a-okay because here is the secret, super top secret document that I got from that intelligence community that said that this happened. Here's the thing. Unless it's the NSA that's dirty or the CIA that's dirty, the other agencies aren't going to do that. They're not. You have the OICI, um, you know, well, they don't really do counterintelligence anymore. So it would be really difficult to explain that one because, uh, but there's, there's, there's maybe, but not too corrupt. I, I want to say not too corrupt. So this is kind of stream of thought right there. But th like I said, there are representatives that could give the documentation Atkinson needs and he can't provide it because there isn't any, because it's it's BS. It's all BS. All of it is BS. There's no in between. It's super duper BS. Now Atkinson is sketchy like nobody else. He's so iffy. Okay. So iffy. This guy, just so you know, told, wait, wait, wait. Um, when he, Atkinson told them when he testified that um, the whistleblower didn't disclose to him, to the intelligence community, that he contacted Schiff's committee. So Atkinson had said that the whistleblower volunteered that he was a registered Democrat. So Atkinson is saying that he wasn't told that the person contacted Schiff's committee and um, that he himself said that he was a registered Democrat. So this is, this is, this means that this came from one of the agencies that I mentioned. Now the CIA would have to go through their IG, which we don't have. So then I would say that Gina Haspel would be responsible for, for providing the verification of identity and, um, you know, verification of the existence of this whistleblower herself. And then we have, you know, the opposite side, which is the NSA and it would be IG Stork. I find it very unlikely that any of the other agencies um, would have allowed that because I'll tell you one thing, right? If I were in an agency X, right, that dealt with like TARDISes and time travel and whatnot, super top secret, and I, I didn't like Obama, Bush, Clinton, all of them, and let's pretend I sat there and said, you know what? One of the drones, when we were like traveling back in time, totally heard Hillary Clinton say this. And I don't like her and I want to whistleblow it and tell them because, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so are going to die. So I put in that request to my inspector general of my unit and I say, look, I saw this and this is totally not fair. 
And this needs to be rectified because when I was traveling back in time, saw her say it and these two people were going to die. And this is the death of people. So can we make an exception? The response that I would get is for the security of our activities and for the security of, you know, our unit, it is ill-advised to do anything as such because that would then draw attention to the unit. Do you understand? So I wanted to just kind of point out that nine times out of 10 through most of these intelligence communities, people that actually have access to very important information usually do not put it out there for the sake of their unit security and for the sake of, um, you know, maintaining that security and confidentiality and keeping them out of scope. I just wanted to say that. So Atkinson has been used and he's fine with it. He's the, he's the IG of the IC. He's totally fine with it. He feels comfortable. Okay. He feels very, very comfortable. And that's what the problem is that they do feel comfortable and we can pander on that one. Okay. Because this is a guy that came from the DOJ. This is the guy that was a uh, senior legal counsel to John Carlin and Mary McCord, who used to head the NSD division of the DOJ when, you know, president Trump was running for president. Um, he was also, um, you know, uh, all over this whole Farrah violations, crossfire hurricane. He knows all of this stuff and he was in on all of that stuff. So basically he's, he's got more motive to help Schiff and Pelosi impeach than anyone. Cause he's done. He helped all the lower level clowns get all of this done. I mean, if the DOJ's National Security Division uh, exploited the NSA with their section, you know, their failed section 702s, right? And they've been abusing FISA and they've been abusing FARA, right? And they were corrupt on the FARA side. So think about it. Then if Atkinson was a lawyer for all those people that did all of that, and he knew it. And now he's in a position to make it all go away with an impeachment. Would he not take the chance? Because regardless, it'll catch up to him. Because there might be, a, you know, a unit, you know, that looks at clocks and makes sure things go clockwork. So he's going to get caught. So think, he's going to do everything in his power to not get, well, he's already caught. Don't get that wrong. Okay. He's already caught, but he hasn't been caught in the public eye. So this person has more motivation for impeachment than shift does shift just has fake blimps diddling with kids, you know, selling out America, doing backdoor deals, you know, so he's got something to lose, but not as much as Atkinson, which is life in prison. Okay. Treason also has the penalty of death. So this is exactly where they're at. Do they get the death penalty? Are they going to get the death penalty? That's the question you should ask yourself. Will he get the death? Will all of them get the death penalty? Because the penalty for treason is death. You have to think about it because when they get prosecuted, it's death. And I know all of us at the you know wing of our seat. Yeah, death. I actually want them to make license plates. I'm just saying um, we shouldn't be taking lives. We should be... Um, making them pay. But 
regardless, as you can see, we're moving along because now he's coming into focus and is going to dig up the whole Carlin, Mary McCord, everything. So, uh, you know, and this all falls in from the actual structure that we had with the mid-year investigation, the mid-year exam that they had on Hillary Clinton. Remember? We had, you know, the um, Peter Strzok that was leading everything, right? And then Lisa Page that would then report directly to McCabe, right? And then McCabe would report to Comey, right? Correct? And then through that, don't forget, Peter Strzok would then be talking with the um, counterintelligence division, like Prestap, right? And then um, he would also be speaking to the um, executive assistant director of those divisions that then would talk to Andy McCabe. Like, this is how it went. And then we have Tosh Gar. Let's not forget. See, everyone's talking about Kevin Kleinsmith, right? He's at the bottom of the food chain because he then would talk to the other FBI attorneys. So FBI attorney two is Kevin Kleinsmith. FBI attorney one is Tashina Gahar, right? Who then would talk to Trisha Anderson, who then would talk to Jim Baker, who then would talk to Andrew McCabe, and then James Comey. So this is like the bottom feeders, just so you understand how they feed. They all have their what? Their chain of command. So if Michael Atkinson has been sitting in the middle and coordinating for all of these clowns and now put in a position where he can weaponize the knowledge he has to help swiftly undergo, you know, get this impeachment done, is he not going to take it? Of course he is. Now, is obviously, Pelosi has not sent over the articles of impeachment because they don't show any crimes and they're completely made up by her and her people because they can't provide a whistleblower because there isn't one. So here we are where Pelosi is now changing it and pushing for war powers. She had a speech earlier today. I want you to take a listen to it because it's pretty interesting. She is off the rails completely. Her weekly speech was just crazy. Listen. Good morning, everyone. Today's a happy day for us. We are going to celebrate the wedding of Barbara Lee, uh, who got married on New Year's Day, or New Year's Eve, I guess it was, uh, in California. Uh, but today we'll celebrate her wedding in Washington, D.C. I convey that to you because it is a source of joy to us, as she is a source of joy in her service to the country, and her personal happiness is, is lovely. In any event, here we are. We've got the eyes in uh, Iran impeachment. Let me start with Iran. Today we will have a resolution on the floor uh, put forth by Congresswoman Elisa Slot Elisa Slotkin. We're very proud of her uh, experience in terms of national security under Democratic and Republican uh, presidents. Uh, now a member of Congress, putting forth a resolution this week. Uh, last week, in our view. Uh, the president, the administration conducted a provocative, disproportionate airstrike uh, against Iran, which endangered Americans, and did so without consulting Congress. Uh, when I was informed of this uh, uh, attack, that, that the administration took responsibility for it uh, uh, over the weekend, uh, I said, why did you not consult with Congress? Well, we held it in closely. We held it in cl closely. No, you have a responsibility to consult with Congress. Uh, no, we held it close. So what, whoever close means, as you see, 
uh, there has been, been <coughs> criticism from the Republicans uh, about the briefing that, w- that was uh, put forth yesterday by the administration on this subject. Some have asked, uh, uh, do you agree that this is the worst uh, uh, intelligence classified briefing that Congress has received from this administration? As some of you have heard me say, there is stiff competition for that designation, designation of worst. Uh, so here we are to uh, protect American lives and values. We are passing today a war powers resolution to limit the president's military actions. The administration must de-escalate and must protect, prevent further violence. America and the world cannot afford war. Some of you have heard me say uh, that in December I took a bipartisan delegation to the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. It was just so remarkable to meet our, our VIPs, were our, our veterans who served at the Battle of the Bulge, some of them also at Normandy. Imagine the courage, teenagers, most of them at the time. But the compelling message from the, veterans who, the veteran who spoke for them, along with the King of Belgium and the Archduke of Luxembourg and the President of Germany, The veteran who spoke, he spoke about the band of brothers. He spoke about allies working together, multilateralism. He spoke about the challenges they faced in those winters, reminding me, really, of Washington crossing the Delaware because it was in December and it was snowing and they were not as prepared uh, for snow and camouflaged from snow as uh, they needed to be. But just seeing their patriotism, their courage, those young people, and this veteran coming to speak for them, 90-some years old, at the end of his remarks, he said, I just have one message, and I don't know if it's appropriate to say, but I will. Pray for peace. Pray for peace. That's what we all do. Protecting the American people is our first responsibility. Protect and defend an oath we take not only of our Constitution, but of the American people. Pray for peace. That's what we must do. And so what, what happened, in the view of many of us, is not a promoting peace, but an escalation. Not that we have any confidence in the goodness or the good intentions of, of Iran. And we certainly do not respect, and I, from my intelligence background, know just how bad Soleimani was. It's not because we expect good things from them, but we expect great things from us. Now, in terms of impeachment, you will keep asking me the same question. I keep giving you the same answer. As I said right from the start, we need to see, to see the, the arena in which we are sending our managers Is that too much to ask? In October, we put forth H.R. 660, which is House Resolution, which talked about the terms under which we would proceed further, uh, to further proceed with the investigation so that people knew uh, what the uh, uh, battlefield would look like. We expect to see that here. I've heard different things. I hear that they might want to, you've, you've probably heard, one way or another, some of them have suggested they might want to dismiss. Dismiss equals cover-up. Dismiss equals admission 
that you're afraid of the facts, the truth, the witnesses, and the documentation. We would have hoped that, uh, like, uh, as with uh, the Clinton uh, process, that there would have been a bipartisan resolution determining how to proceed. Contrary uh, to what the majority leader says, he says this is like the Clinton. No, it's not at all. And I sent our members yesterday six points in which it is, six of the points in which it is different. But nonetheless, at some point, we would hope that we would see from them what the terms of engagement will be. We are ready. We are proud of our defense of the Constitution of the United States. We are concerned that the senators will not be able to live up to the oath that they must take to have an impartial trial. So much for that. Uh, at the same time, as this is all going on, it's important to note that there's so many other things of concern to the American people. One is the assault on the Affordable Care Act. Okay, we're going to get into that, the, the remainder of her chit-chat, uh, right after the break. But what I wanted to say is her War Powers Act indicates uh, them trying to take more control um, uh, than the president to really limit presidents being able to uh, move forward. Now, Nancy Pelosi has one thing. It seems that she has some sort of medication that works well for the first 10 minutes, and then she goes off, making absolutely no sense. Um, and what I want to go on is her remarks in regards to Iran. Because, see, the Iranian, uh, you know, debacle is um, very complicated uh, for those that don't understand. I've, I've pretty much bucket simplified uh, the whole relationship. But the people that are in what you would call the community of foreign policy um, all have different perspectives. And uh, it's really difficult for someone to understand from their perspective, okay, from their perspective, what sense this, uh, this hit of Soleimani, Soleimani had. Because remember, in Iraq right now, part of their own security, part of their own security, right, their national security establishment in Iraq right now actually has uh, al-Muhandis and Hezbollah leaders, okay? This is why they passed that law to expel so easy, just so you know. So these Hezbollah and Mahdi followers, right, are in the Iraqi government. So it's kind of difficult to parse them out. More on that after the break. So you understand where we're going with this and what really happened in Iran and why we had this strike. I'll see you all in a bit.
Welcome back, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So this is the second hour of the Tori Says Show today on January 9th, 2020. And we're going to continue with Nancy Pelosi. But before uh, we do, let me just tell you what we're going to talk about now. We're going to finish up with Nancy Pelosi. We're going to talk about Iran as well. I want to explain to you how this happened because a lot of people don't seem to understand um, you know, if this was a retaliation or if it was pre-planned to take out, um, you know, this commander, uh, as well as uh, the commander of the Iraqi militia, um, you know, because both of them were taken out, right? It was um, Haji Kasim and um, who's kind of like the... Um, you know, I, I like to say like the Obama, the region, but if we want to take it more center, more, more central here, he would be like the, the advisor to all the commanders of like SOCOM. Okay. Kind of like that. So he is one. And now we have to understand that many other Iranians that worked under him, IRGC are also targets. Um, Iraq itself, um, had their own, you know, big, huge militia guy be taken out too at the time. So it's um, just a lot of big people being taken out. So let's continue with Nancy Pelosi and take it from there because what she says starts to tell you where they're going with this. I mean, they had nothing, they had nothing in regards to, uh, why they need to stop the president, you know, why they have to do this, why they're impeaching, how they're not doing it. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting if you see uh, how she goes about explaining things uh, in regards to um, the impeachment. Okay, let's start here. Here we go. Uh, that are collateral benefit to the discussion. And they relate to, um, uh, on December 20th, new emails showed that 91 minutes after Trump's phone call with the Ukrainian president, a top OMB aide asked DOD to hold off on sending military aid to the Ukraine, directly related to that call. On December 29th, it was report public revelations about Mulvaney's role in the delay of the aid, the effort of lawyers at OMB, DOJ, and White House to justify the delay and the alarm that the delay caused within the administration, because everyone was not in agreement. Last Thursday, newly um, unredacted Pentagon emails exposed serious concerns by administration officials about the legality of the president's hold on the aid, legality of the president's hold on the U aid to Ukraine. <clears throat> Just this week, Bolton announced that he would comply with a subpoena compelling his testimony. His lawyers have stated he has new relevant information. Uh, these and other of uh, our, our investigation and our uh, um, articles um, necessitate a fair trial with documents and witnesses. They don't want documents, the documentation. They don't want witnesses. They may want a dismissal, which is proof that they cannot, cannot uh, clear the president of the wrongdoing that he has put forth. So are you but, willing to the articles indefinitely? No, I'm not holding them indefinitely. I'll send them over when I'm ready. And that will probably be soon. I just, you know, he said, if you don't send them over, I'm going to pass the Mexico-U.S. Canada trade agreement. Okay. Uh, but, uh, no, we, we, 
We want to see what they're willing to do and the manner in which they will do it. But we will not let them say, oh, this is just like Clinton, fair is fair. It's not. Uh, documents, documentation, witnesses, facts, truth. That's what they're afraid of. Who are we talking about? House Democrats. Oh, I thought you meant Mitch McConnell. So, okay. So, so, but shouldn't you move more expeditiously, given the fact that you raised this serious concern that the president poses to? No, I think we should move smartly and strategically. Madam Speaker, yes, on, on, on Iran, good morning. This is an H. Con res, not a Best. joint resolution. H. Con a concurrent resolution, right. yes. There's been some criticism from both sides that this should be binding. I know there's some parliamentary questions about it being privileged over there, but why not make this with real teeth to make this like an AUMF? This is with real teeth. Uh, if, if you are familiar with the War Powers Act, and I'll get you the text, the War Powers Act enables two approaches to go forward. One is a concurrent resolution, and it gives the procedure for that, which we will be following today, and it gives a, uh, a, a path for concurrent uh, for a H-Con resolution. We're taking this path because it does not require a statement by the uh, a signature of the President of the United States. This is a statement of the Congress of the United States, and I will not have that. Did you hear that? We're going that path because we don't require the signature of the President to make it law. You heard that, right? That statement be diminished by whether the President will veto it or not. Madam Speaker, Madam, yes, many of your members have raised serious concerns about uh, the timing of the strike against Soleimani, the administration's justification. You've been briefed. Do you think that the administration misled the American people about an imminent attack? I think that it's very um, unfortunate that right now, because I was briefed in the Gang of Eight and I was briefed in the, uh, what did he call it, demeaning and worst. Uh, a classified briefing that the, the Republican senators ever heard yesterday. So it's, uh, at this point, in terms of what is in the public domain, difficult uh, to address some of what they uh, uh, contended. However, I will say this, because I was informed by phone calls I mentioned to you earlier, I think I did anyway, uh, that, that um, when I was briefed by the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, over the weekend, taking responsibility for the, uh, the, the killing, um, uh, that it was disdainful in terms of not consulting with Congress, dismissive. We had, we held it closely, really. So if you want us to all join together, let us have a strategy that we work together on. I do not believe in terms of what is in the public domain uh, that they have made the country safer by what they did. And that is what our responsibility is. Uh, we'll have more discussion of this on the floor today at some length. But it's real, again, as I go back to the Battle of the Bulge, pray for peace. We must avoid war. Okay, so first off, I just wanted to say 
So they're upset because, first of all, the Secretary of Defense um, called her to advise her over the weekend about the strike, right? She was upset that they didn't share it, and it was an opportunity with intelligence they had. Look, we're striking. We're not going to wait around until you guys wake up and discuss it. We're doing it now, and we're not going to take the chance of you guys screwing it up again like you did last time. Take that to the bank. So she was upset that they didn't tell her because it shows that the president does have presidential powers and he doesn't have to tell her. It seems that she says that the nation is not safer. She's right. The whole world is safer, not just our nation, with Suleimani out of the way. Haji Qasem was a danger to the world. He orchestrated and coordinated events of very nefarious groups that he had under his command. So for her to even mention that is a problem. But we'll get into the whole briefing thing now because, you know, in the details, that's where the devil is, right in the details. So keep listening to her, and I'll let you know when that devil pops up. And the cavalier attitude of this administration, it, it, it's, it's stunning. And the president just say, oh, I inform you by reading my tweets. No, that's not the relationship that our founders had in mind in the Constitution of the United States when they gave power to the president, to the White House, <coughs> to do one thing in terms of our national security and to the Congress uh, to declare war and to allocate resources and the rest. So this, this is, this is a, your question is an important one. Uh, we, again, we will have two hours of debate. Now we're on the rule, two hours on the bill today to, to, uh, to put forth some of the factual basis of, our, of the concern that we have. And let me just say this, because you hear the administration say, well, we were justified because the Office of Legal Counsel said. The Office of Legal Counsel is a tool of the President of the United States. That's who that is. So whatever the President wants to do to be declared legal, his Office of Legal Counsel declares it so. So it's, it's uh, misleading to the public as to what... War Powers Act, Article 2 that gives the President certain powers, Article 1 that gives the House, the Congress a certain powers are. It's a, it's, a, it's a very big issue now because it's nothing less than preventing war as we honor our first responsibility to protect the American people. Madam Speaker, yesterday that came to the Senate, several people came out and said the briefers told them that putting out information debating the War Powers Act would empower Iran. The House floor is debating war powers mm -hmm. around Iran. Mm -hmm. What do you say to the Trump administration if they're telling you that's empowering Iran? The, uh, I, don't, I don't spend a whole lot of time telling them anything because I don't know what their basis of uh, judgment is to receive him. Yeah, uh, what's the basis of judgment? How is me telling the president he's not allowed to attack, attack Iran empowering Iran? It's totally empowering Iran. It's like, you know, you want to fight your enemy and, you know, suddenly you're making a global declaration. Well, your enemy is not allowed to have any guns and their hands are being tied behind their back. So what's your enemy going to do? Sit there and be like, oh, dear, I'm still compromised. No, they're going to get bolder. They're going to get stronger and they're going to cut a deal with these people through the back channels. That's what they're doing. 
information. However, I will say this. If they think that any statement they make is there to curtail public debate on a subject as serious as this, it just explains to you the seriousness of the situation that we are in. We will debate on the floor of the House. Now, we are not going on the floor talking about what we learned in the... Um, and they said at the beginning, they said, even if you read it in the newspaper, if you hear it in here, you can't talk about it. And then they proceed to tell us many things that we have read in the local metropolitan journals that are seen on TV. But that's that's foolish. That's, you know, it's completely foolish. And the... Um, as I say, we have no illusions about Iran, no illusions about Soleimani. He was a terrible person, did bad things. But it's not about how bad they are. It's about how good we are. Protecting <laughs> the people in a way that prevents war. Oh. And does not have us producing again and again generations of veterans who are suffering because of it. Let me, let me just close by saying this. When we were there, and... and I've met many of these veterans. Here we go. 70th anniversary of of Normandy. When I met them there, I said, well, my uncle was in World War II, close to the Battle of the Bulge. They said, well, we went there next. And these were so brave teenagers, mostly. They were 18, 19, seven, some 17 years old. And when we talked to them this time, because deeper relationships over time, they said, um, you know, I never wanted to kill anybody. I didn't want to kill the Germans. I was uh, incapacitating them. I would shoot them in the leg or something. And then one of them told me, uh, I killed somebody, and I found out later he was a doctor, and I've always carried that with me. I said, well, you were, you were instructed to shoot him, because a, a superior said, you take him, I'll take him. You know? And they said, well, he said, well, I, I still never forget that. So we all would die for our country. We take pride in saying that. But to kill for our country is a pretty traumatic thing. So when we want to engage in these, uh, uh, whatever you want to call this that the president engaged in, we have to be really careful about it. Yeah, we have to be really careful. So let's take a listen to this. The time. So if we want to have an honest debate about the War Powers Act, then let's have an honest debate about the War Powers Act. Why don't we hear anything from our colleagues on the other side of the aisle about Libya when President Barack Obama took action that led to the, to the death of Muammar Gaddafi? We came, we saw, he died. Why not Syria? Why not Yemen? Why is Iran individually spelled out in this resolution? The only reason Iran is singing out in this resolution is to take a political jab at President Trump for utilizing an airstrike to take out General Soleimani a terrorist who was responsible for kill, killing thousands of Americans, partner troops, and yes, Iranians. Huh. So in this War Powers Act, they spell out Iran. I mean, you would almost think that they were like in love with Iran or had all their investments in Iran or that Iran has a list of names or, 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 right? Right? We didn't see it about Yemen. We didn't see it about Syria or Libya or Lebanon. Come on, let's keep going. But now we see it and it says Iran. Iran. Oh. Because they want to say, look, we were with you. We just didn't know. Trust us. We didn't know. We didn't. We would never backstab you. Obama, I promise. 
So while our colleagues are upset with the use of the airstrikes to kill General Soleimani, I would remind them that the Obama administration, according to their own Department of National Intelligence, conducted hundreds of airstrikes, averaging more than six kills a week between January 2009 and December 2015, and that is in the areas of non-hostilities. That doesn't even include Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, which are classified numbers. So let's just be honest about what this is. This is another partisan attack against the President of the United States for killing General Soleimani, who is a terrorist in an, in an area where the President had the absolute legal authority to operate. With that, Madam Speaker, I yield the remainder of my time. I'll reserve. Gentleman from Texas reserves. The gentleman from Massachusetts is recognized. Uh, Madam Speaker, let me just respond to the gentleman from Georgia who I have a great deal of respect for. Let's, let's be honest here. Um, many of us, uh, contrary to what the gentleman just said, have been outspoken against uh, uh, unilateral interventions by the executive branch without notifying Congress, without seeking our approval on, uh, on uh, military authorization uh, under Obama. Um, and I, for one, was uh, critical of, of, the of his drone attacks. I raised issues about the, uh, the inv our involvement in Syria. I want to ask unanimous consent to insert in the record a statement that I made uh, saying that Congress should reconvene uh, and debate and vote on a resolution with regard to what the Obama administration was doing in Libya. So some of us have been consistent Without on objection. this through Democratic and Republican administrations. So I take great exception uh, when anybody tries. Well, you know, let's stop right there. Making your comment and putting it in there saying, you know, I don't feel comfortable with this because I'm not getting a piece of the cake because that's basically what he was doing is different than putting forward a bill of a War Powers Act because this is what grandstanding is like. Okay, he's speaking about, you know, hey, I'm not in on this. They're not telling me stuff and I'm upset that I'm not in the loop and they should have told me because I want a piece of that pie and because I'm not respected enough to be to have parts in this piece of the pie of Libya, of Syria, of Lebanon, of Yemen, of Oman. We can name tons. Sudan that is now just South Sudan. Where's the North, right? Uh, Burkina Faso, I didn't get any cuts on that. So I'm going to put my complaint in writing that we need to convene about it, which was ignored, but it was your way of saying, I want in. So let's not, you know, go in on what he's saying. I mean, it's not really important. So Soleimani's killing is triggering everyone. I'm pretty sure that Owen's really, really upset. Iran is a pain point for all of them. The thing is, is that they're saying that we had the opportunity to take out one of the most influential people that drive terrorism in the Middle East, and they're upset. They're upset because they say that we're in grave danger. No, you are in grave danger. All of them are in grave danger because we got the list. Do you know how I know that we got the list? I'll clue you in on what happened, and this is why they're upset. This is why we kept it close, as um, you know, Pelosi was told. This is why they kept it close. And you know what? On air, we were here just a little bit um, over a month ago talking about it, right? I'm going to 
deconstruct this again, once again for you guys, so you can get it. Because it's really important we see that this is all part of the plan. Take well, also those protests did kick off on Friday. The situation that has been ongoing in Iran is blurry, and that's because of an internet outage that has occurred. Now, we in the Cube, we often connect with people who are on the ground in certain countries to understand an, an ongoing situation, but we can't do that in Iran. So we've been using uh, tools that are readily available on the internet to understand the connectivity. One of those is run by Oracle, and it's called the Internet Intel Map, and it can tell you the connectivity in a certain country, this coming from Iran. Wait a minute. So are you saying that this private company can see uh, what city, street, state, country... In general, how much people are using the Internet? Pretty interesting, huh? That's clue number one. And they noted that on that, that uh, on November 16th at about 7 p.m. there was a drop in connectivity and that has continued on and is still ongoing, that drop in connection. Now, Doug Madry of uh, the Internet Intel Group of Oracle, he commented, he said that this was something that he hadn't seen before, saying that this was arguably the largest ever event for Iran when it comes to Internet dropping. But also NetBlock, they monitor connectivity. They also commented, saying uh, that the national connectivity remains at just 5% of normal levels. But also our Cloudflare, they noted their own data and they said that it shut down progressively by service providers on November 16th. But they're Cloudflare, you know, the one that Hillary Clinton kind of owns, the one that, yeah. So they're saying, oh, it was done progressively. They shut down units one by one by one. And there's not zero internet traffic. There's just like 5% of what they used to use. So keep listening. There have been people commenting in the UN, the likes of David Kane. He said that this was impeding on people's human rights, rights to connection, but also information. And we've been speaking to Iranian Americans, including Asina Tusi, and he said Iranians can't get in touch with people at home. Let's just take a listen. You know, it's been immensely difficult to contact our loved ones back home right now. And usually, like, you know, me personally, I use WhatsApp or, you know, even Skype or some of these other apps like Viber. But all of these apps are not, you know, people can't access them right now. So it's very disconcerting. We've basically. Well, he's on Skype right now talking to them, but he can't use Viber and WhatsApp. <laughs> oh, you mean the apps that have been created by intelligence communities can't be accessed. Uh, you mean you can't access websites that can plant cookies to turn on your camera and listen to you type access. See, what I said over a month ago was that Iran doing this was for the purpose of recreating their firewall. And it is a strategy. When you change something, when you're doing something, when you're changing it, like flipping it, you need to have no eyes on you. And so, for example, here in the United States, when the Democrats were going to take over under Hillary Clinton's regime, I'll tell you what the future was. In 2019, up and around March of 2019, some attack would have happened out of the blue where it would have knocked out all our communications gradually. Because you don't want to take everybody offline. You need your own people online. That would disable communications for the average citizen. It is at that point that a military-type law would have been installed, supposedly unifying us to protect ourselves. 
And then when we wake up from that attack, socialism will have settled in and new partnerships would have formed with Canada and Mexico, making us one nation. To further whatever attack it was, possibly they would have told us aliens. I mean, Blue Beam. Blue Beam is pretty big. Uh, we would have forged an alliance with the European Union because, you know, we have to stick together under a common enemy. So curfews. So this is your job. Here's how we distribute money. Banks are obsolete now. The government will take care of you. I'm sorry for the inconvenience. We didn't really want to take over and create a totality government, but we had to. That was your future under Hillary Clinton. So knocking out communications is the key to shifting a regime quite easy. And what we've seen is a shift in regime by Iran. And this is why the mainstream media is in full swing panic because they do not have access to the information on the ground. And any access they do is being monitored by so many eyes. 15 maybe? Mm. Maybe it's the 14 eyes. We'll see. I'll see you all in just a bit. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. So, again, Iran, they're scathing. They want, they're telling the world, oh my gosh, we can't communicate with people. This guy's from San Francisco, by the way. He's in a building. Doesn't look like he's in Iran and he's Skyping because uh, the buildings are not Iranian behind him. Uh, so, that's pretty weird. We, most people have lost communication with their loved ones for the past several days. But one of the key questions is how such a mass internet outage could even occur. And people like Amir Rashidi, he's a researcher in this area. He points to two reasons, one of which is a reliance on national, uh, national infrastructure rather than private companies, but also U.S. sanctions. This is what he told us. Imagine if the U.S. policy continue for the next ten, three years and Iran finish this development and they then in the next three years, they don't even need that 7% of internet connectivity. They can shut it down completely, and we have absolutely zero access. Uh, we would have absolutely zero access to inside the country. As for what has occurred over the last couple of days in Iran, that'll be clearer when the internet comes back. You mean they didn't know what was going on in Iran because they didn't have the internet access? That's key. Because they don't need to know. Because if they know, then they deter. Listen to Pelosi. That how we endanger our men and women in uniform who courageously, patriotically uh, put themselves out there to protect and, and defend. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, because, thank you, uh, yeah. because the airstrike targeting General Soleimani happened in Iraq, is that time for the House to consider a broader AUMF? I know that that's sort of the, the, the legal justification the administration has put forward with this, this airstrike. Is it time for, for Congress to get rid of the 2001-2002? For sure. 
So now the reporter asked her, is it time to get rid of the authority that the president has based on this strike? Are you guys going to do that now? Well, we did get rid of the AUMF of two, uh, 2002, uh, and we, it was in an appropriations bill, and it passed in a bipartisan way. And in the dark of night, the then... Okay, did you hear that? It was in an appropriations bill. So that means they had snuck it in in some appropriations bill, so we did get rid of that one. And Speaker Ryan just took it out. It was highly unusual. Oh, and there was one that they tried to take the 2001 out, but Speaker Ryan literally took that out of that appropriations bill while we snuck it in. And that was highly, un, you know, unprecedented. They've never seen that before. Highly unusual. They just went and took it out. I mean, that's just ridiculous, but that's what he did. So Congress has already passed uh, rejecting, uh, after it passed both houses, he took it out before it was signed. So uh, we will have that resolution coming up soon under leadership of Congresswoman Barbara Lee, whose wedding we observed today. <laughs> and, the, um, and then the question is, what do we do about an AUMF? It's harder than you would think, because an AUMF, so who, who's president, a Democrat or Republican, how much power, confidence do you have in that person, regardless of party, uh, to execute an AUMF? And the decisions that have to be made about AUMF, it's important to note, are what is the timing of it? This one is too long. It didn't have it a date. should have a date. Not one that couldn't be renewed, but nonetheless, it should have a date. The timing, the geography, what are we talking about? This was to go into Iraq. It was used then to pursue al-Qaeda different places, and, and here we are. And And... Third, uh, what is the scope? Are we talking about boots on the ground? Are we talking about air cover? What are we talking about in terms of scope? So timing, geography, and scope. When you have that debate, it's, well, I want the president to have as much power, or I want the president not to have as much power. So it's hard. It's hard. It's hard because we need to know, like, do we have confidence? Is it one of our guys or one of their guys? Uh, that's what she said. And that's what she meant. Is it for air cover, boots on the ground? Like, what are we talking? How much power do we give him? You know, because we can't put that legislation because what if we have a Democrat next? We won't be allowed to, to remove that legislation. So we got to be really, really careful because we don't know if we trust the next one. So we want to make sure the next one, according to polls, for them going forward is Bernie Sanders. See, communism is alive and well. Better than you would think, but we have to do it. And when we do it, we have to have it with enough time that is realistic militarily but also not endless, so that we're in a situation that we're in now. So to your point, the, uh, the argument would be made that putting the shoe on the other foot, if the United States had a high level, maybe the second most important person in the country, assassinated wherever uh, the United States might assassinate assault on our country, right? And the Iranians might as well, even though this took place at the Iraqi airport. And so it's it, it's. Wait a minute. Are there are they saying that someone that we've designated as a foreign terrorist is supposed to have the same respect as someone that's elected in office in our country? 
Are you seeing the level of respect they had for Haji Qasem? I'm just pointing it out in case you missed it. Foggy, there are those who think, well, it was in Iraq, so it counts. But it was an assault on Iran, so it shouldn't count. I don't think there's anybody who thinks that that AUMF would apply in Iran. Okay, so here's another thing. Um, we didn't just take him out. We took out Iraqi militia leaders and stuff like that. Why don't they mention that? <laughs> Bizarre, isn't it? How they're omitting specific facts, but sticking to only a few. Up to your other point on it, though, it is, um, it, it needs to be addressed, rewritten, because we have to have an authorization of use of military force specific to, to the uh, danger uh, that we are, are addressing. Thank you. One last question, yes, ma'am. Well, they, they are in the Senate hands. This is the Senate, uh, and they have tried to have uh, a bipartisan approach to how they would conduct the investigation as uh, the, what are we calling it, the trial, uh, conduct the trial. But... Um, did you hear that? No, no, no. We already have them in the hands of the Senate. And, you know, they're kind of finding a bipartisan way to do the inquiry. What are we calling it? Oh, the trial. They don't even know what they're doing. But feebly, feebly, uh, the majority leader has said this is just like Clinton, except it isn't. It's, it's exactly not like Clinton in that he won't do a bipartisan agreement on how to proceed. So that's very important. But it is not incidental to say, but for the uh, documentation and the witnesses. Now, what, on, now, separate from all of that, under the uh, House Senate rules of 1986, what is uh, allowed for the presentation from the House is one person to speak. One person to speak. So are those the terms? Is, is that what we should be ready for? Or is there something else that they have in mind? It's one so are they changing the rules? Because that's the rule right now that one person goes in there and speaks. And they have the papers. They just don't have the witnesses or the witness list. or But they have our articles without all the stuff. So should we have just one person talk? One person to speak for the House and one person to speak for the White House. Did you know that? 1986. So is that the rule under which they're going? That all we want to know is what are the rules? It doesn't mean we have to agree to the rules or we have to like the rules. We just want to know what they are. So getting back to sports because that's all we live, right? Football, football, college, high school, professional do we send in our team or do we have to send in special team as well as the team? Because we have to know what is what that trial is about. No, yeah, he they've had the negotiation. The senator has said he has doesn't have to have witnesses and the rest. So that's Schumer but, said know, that. We may send them over, but we have our. I'm not responsible to Mitch McConnell or anybody else except my members and the people who have worked so hard
on this. <clears throat> Members and staff patriotically honoring the oath of office, the Constitution of the United States. And I will give them their, our best shot to find the truth for our bosses, the American people. Mm-hmm. Thank you all very much. That was good, right? She threw that in there quite well. Now, let's parse through for a little bit. One thing people need to understand is the Iranians never, ever make any decisions on the fly. They actually take a lot of care in how they respond to things. Now, it is, uh, you know, widely known that John Bolton, they, he loves war. He's a type of person that says, you know, war, level the playing field and we're done. So John Bolton is all about, let's take it out. We're done. And that's the way it is. Let's be decisive. That's how he feels. This is why he scares me because he's like an all or nothing. Yeah, there'll be casualties, but I don't care. Our president does though. Now, um, the timing of the attack that they keep talking about is being concluded to be because of the issues that we're having in our domestic politics. Now that in one fact, you know, in one facet of it is correct because we realize that the domestic U S politics rely on those relationships, these nefarious relationships with nations like Iran and the Ukraine. Now, there were airstrikes uh, prior to this one, you know, that took out Haji Qasem uh, in Kirkuk, right? Where we had a civilian contractor die. That was planned. That was organized. And that was kind of like a pre-earthquake. Have you ever heard of that where they have like little earthquakes before the big one happens and then, and then after the big earthquake you have aftershocks, right? So... By taking out Haji Suleimani and um, Commander uh, Mahdi, right? By taking them out, you have to understand the organization level of who was taken out. It would be like someone took out um, Pentagon chief. Okay. So let's say it would be like you took out, um, Esper and O'Brien. Okay. That's the level of people that were taken out. So you have to think if we've taken out their defense secretary, supposedly right equivalent and their national security advisor to the president, whoever their president is. No wonder people are freaking out because these people have sat down with these officials. I mean, wasn't Soleimani in Paris, France in 2018 chilling with Kerry, right? Haven't they met with officials before? I mean, Mahdi's met with Obama, right? So think, 
have the Iranians, when they planned the attack that took out the contractor, was it planned in a way of, look at us, you think you got rid of terrorism, we're right here? Or was it planned to hand over the real orchestrators, the real nefarious actors on a platter to the United States? Because for me, it seems that this... um attack in Kinnikuk, where the contractor uh, was um, killed, the U.S. contractor was killed, uh, could be indeed um, a setup by Iran, by Iran's people. There is a difference between the IRGC-controlled Iran and, the, and Persia. Okay, let's separate it like that. Let's talk about Iran as this, you know, you know, this head of this snake of terrorism of the boogeyman that was created to whip everyone into submission. And then we have Persia, the real Iranian people. So they're split in two. There's a very big difference. Could it be that Persia let us know? And this is how it is. Could it be? I mean, the fact that President Trump didn't use, I would say, deadly weapons to respond, Space Force, right? Because Space Force was launched the day before. Do you know what was on that payload? No, you don't. So what we have to realize is that we anticipated every move. Could it be that Persia is tired? Yes. Because the indicator for that is one, the internet. That's number one. And who made noise about it? Because the internet's been cut off before. But no one's ever been so mm, about it, right? But what is key is the tweeting of the Iranian president, the tweeting. Almost identical to that between Kim Jong-un and President Trump when everything was being sorted. Iran is this third year of this presidency's accomplishment. Like I said, by April, that'll be finished. After April, after some primaries happen, people will be rolling up with cuffs. So we're talking Senate, we're talking Congress, we're talking all of them. Slowly, you will see them run in because that is how you take care of business because that is how you put some order in. But we need to take out these global threats that are cooperating with them. Now, speaking of global threats, a plane was down. A Ukrainian plane was down. Now, to my friends, I actually shared the manifest, the actual manifest from the airlines with all the names. And like I said, the names on there were all not mm, non-Arab, okay? Uh, except for less than 10. And of one is one that many people that I follow on Twitter follow, right? And people that follow me follow him. And then a company, a company that seems to have had one of their best in the field leaving Iran. Now, like I said yesterday, if missiles were flying from the west of Iran into Iraq, right? 
then what missiles on the east of Iran hit that plane? Because Iran would never put other nations' people at risk. They would have a grounded flight. All flights would be grounded. So first of all, calling on it, if missiles were flying from the west of Iran into Iraq, then I would expect that no planes would be flying on the borders of Iran and Iraq. Right? Correct? Mm. But the congestion was like insane. And now all the other planes in Iran were grounded. But one plane decided that it's going to lift off and fly. And then the site they show you isn't even the site where it supposedly crashed. So would Iran shoot down mm, an aircraft leaving? And think, this aircraft was people fleeing. Fleeing. It was families. And scientists... And I don't know, journalists that pretend they're journalists, but they're not journalists because what they're doing there is not journalism. It's, they don't have internet. So I'm going to tell you what's up with a little satellite in my pocket that I makeshifted out of chewing gum and wrapping paper. I'm just saying, look at the manifest and look who is on it. That tells you everything you need to know. So who took it down? Well, we say Iranians did. Is it the Persians or the IRGC? I say it's the Persians. Could it be that there was someone on that plane that was telling on the Persians? Could it be that those running away were people that were helping the IRGC coordinate things and intelligence? And still... One thing that people don't know is that these airlines have Ukrainian technology on them. Oh, and fun fact, all of almost all Iranian aircraft have Ukrainian software on them. I just thought I'd mention that because I don't think a lot of people know that relationship. So it seems like the Ukraine and Iran have more in common than just corrupt Democrats and money laundering. They also share uh, technology with each other, which is pretty cool, huh? Now, speaking to my sources in Iran, they're pretty confident that this was done by the IRGC, not the Persian side. And it didn't come just from the IRGC. It was the Persian side too. Okay. I just want to, the reason is, is because the IRGC knew that people that were against the IRGC were on there. And then the uh, Iran side of things knew that there were people on there that were pro IRGC that were going to tell on them that were on there. Mm? So who done it? Maybe both, but it's them period. So now all you need to look at is who was on the airplane. And of course, like I said, there's mothers, fathers, and children. Some of them were just women with three children, but there were also people that were living there for a while. Like there was a family from Canada that resided there for a while and left for the Ukraine out of all places, the Ukraine, right? And you would say, well, maybe they were getting a connecting flight to Canada. Stop. They would have went through Saudi air. They would have taken Qatar air. You usually don't go through the Ukraine with Ukrainian airlines. Let's be straight. 
Unless you were in a rush and it was the only plane to go, even though everything else was grounded, you decided to hop on the only plane that wasn't grounded. And think about it. Why wouldn't it be grounded? Why would everything else be grounded but that plane? It seems bizarre, right? I'm just saying it seems bizarre because usually if you're leaving from Tehran, you know, you would probably if you're going to like Canada or the United States, you're more than likely going to fly out toward UAE and then from there take the longer flight out Um, because they have better airlines too. Like why would you go through the Ukraine? It's like you have a death wish. I mean, and it's not even cheaper too. I'm just making that point. But the flight pattern is weird. You know, a whole family that obviously resided there in Iran from Canada, the Caucasian family, was relocating on the day that missiles were flying. Right? On the only plane that seemed to be lifting off in Iran. And I said that yesterday and I'm reinforcing it today. Who was on that plane will tell you... uh What is going on? And it's not so much the who, it's what was on that plane too. What? Maybe some drives, maybe some information, maybe, maybe, maybe. That's the key. Who was on the plane? And why go through the extent of showing all of this, uh, you know, wreckage that's contradicting? I mean, After all, we do have the mainstream media telling us about deep fake videos and how we can't trust our own eyes because, you know, what's about to come is going to be pretty interesting. So that's the key. All of this happened very well-timed, orchestrated, down to every single dance move from the missiles being shot to the missiles being Old Turkish duds, right? Old Turkish duds. I mean, why do they have Turkish short-range missiles? I thought that Turkey was complying with U.S. sanctions back in the day. Guess not, right? Mm. And why, you know, when this retaliation happened, there were no casualties? Obviously, Space Force. And obviously, Space Force, you know, that had this mm, awesome payload up there can tell you exactly who took that plane that plane down. But it's not our business to tell the world their business uh, because then it just shows how much technology we have and how much we know. Just because we have it doesn't mean we use it, but if we use it, we're not going to tell you we are, right? On that note, I want to wish you guys a fabulous evening. God bless from all of us here at Red State Talk Radio. Pray. Pray for peace always. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow.